year is it? Hello and welcome to a new episode of What Year Is It? I am your host, Casey Ellis, here with my co-hosts. Kevin Doran. Uh, Zach Tenardi. And we have a new randomly generated year for you all. This year we have, what year, what year is it, guys? It's 1965, and for me, the music guy, it's never been better. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a tremendous upgrade for Kevin. You actually get some rock and roll and music that you might have actually had in your lifetime to listen to. <laughs> Not only that, but I have Grammys. I have Billboard charts. I have like oh. all sorts of uh, just like grading and, and just an explosion of good music, too which we'll all talk about and i've been like through my notes you'll find like it's built on a lot of stuff that happened in the previous two years we did 1930 and 1950 yeah no more like looking through like f scott fitzgerald's memoirs to to see what the popular music was oh i love f scott fitzgerald's memoirs and uh (laughs) it was only uh al jolson you know for your information (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I hear that. Uh, I hear. I hear Zelda was a big Stones fan. <laughs> she would have been had she not died tragically in a sanitarium fire. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. nice. We're all about the positive. On that news happy here. note, yeah. <laughs> so, Kevin, we've kind of started the topic on music. Why don't you uh, take the baton and get it rolling? All right. So the first thing I looked for were the biggest hit singles of 1965. Uh, five of the top five songs, three of them were Beatles songs. Uh, and But the top selling hit single was the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. <sighs> The Beatles. Uh, I, I think I've heard about them once or twice. <laughs> yeah, we are in the throes of Beatlemania, guys. Not help the movie. Their second feature film was released this year, along with the basically the companion album Help, which had a lot of great songs. Uh, yeah, Help was one of the singles. Yesterday was another one in Ticket to Ride. They also released. Uh, they also did their Shea Stadium. Uh, concert in 1965 as part of their 1965 tour of the United States. Huge just Beatlemania going on right now in the middle of it. When I was looking through TV, I saw that 1965 was already their fourth fucking appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people could not get enough of these guys. They, um, you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the Beatles. I'm a huge Beatles fan. Um, Mad respect for the Stones and the Birds, who had the fifth hit single that year, which was uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, which you know, I, I'm actually more of a fan of the Bob Dylan version of that one myself. I'm, I'm oh, more yeah, of a fan of the William Shatner version of that one. Bill Shatner <laughs> put his own stank on it. Oh, yeah. Not to mess with the format too much, but we've got a lot more great births in 1965, mm-hmm. which if we think of like the way that these births go, um, I guess, think 20 to 30 years in the future, what's going on from 1965. So we have uh, Beth Gibbons, the vocalist for Portishead, or Portishead, I've really never learned how to pronounce it. Rob Zombie was born in 1965. Uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff, pretty good. Dr. Dre, (laughs) Dr. Dre and Suge Knight. We're both born in 1965, as was Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Ooh. Uh, and Courtney Love, who broke up another band that we all love. Uh, <laughs> you know, also, I, I actually don't mind a lot of stuff from Hole. 
Yeah, me neither. And I, I think Courtney Love is actually a really good actress. Uh, did you ever see The People versus Larry Flint? She's wonderful in that. No, I haven't. I need to watch it. Yeah. Also, Slash was born. Moby. Oh. Uh, slash from born. like ACDC slash slash from Guns N' Roses. Oh, Guns N' Roses. So, oh, that's bad. That's that's recorded <laughs> now for history for me to fuck that up. Moby, Gavin Rosdale and Bjork, whose house I saw when I was in Iceland. I love how <laughs> Bjork is just like the international representative of Iceland. I mean, name someone the, else from Iceland. The Icelandic people love it, too, because she is. <laughs> Uh, and finally, just as like I normally don't do deaths, but Nat King Cole actually died in 1965 at age 45. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he was a lifelong smoker and the lung cancer got him. This, that yeah, that's is... going to come up uh, later in my bit. It's amazing how many names from the years we've already covered are going to pop up in this year again. <laughs> it's uh, 45 still. So it was lung cancer, I'm guessing. Oof. Now let's get on to the dirty. Like I said, Beatlemania. Uh, as Casey knows, they were introduced to the United States on the Ed Sullivan show some year. What was it, sixty three? Yeah, they they were just pimped out all across this fucking country over the course of like two and a half years. <laughs> pimped out. Yeah. So so they started filming Help in February, and it was released in August. Uh. And right after it was released, they played the Shea Stadium concert. At that point, it was the largest concert that was ever held at that time. Uh, 55,600 people. Yeah, they were everywhere. I'm just imagining like their publicist on street corners like, yeah, 40 bucks. You want to see the Beatles? I got your Beatles. Come on. uh." (laughs) Now, a little after a week after that concert, uh, that was a bad sentence. A little after that concert, (laughs) um, they met the Beatles. Or Sorry, the Beatles met. Elvis Presley, famously, who was their hero, absolute hero. And they got to go to his house. They met him one time. Uh, that was on August 27th of that year. It was also the year that they were appointed uh, MBE, members of the British Empire. They were basically like made like Sir Paul or whatever. And that was a pretty controversial choice at that time because musicians usually weren't uh, given that kind of honor. So a lot of current M- uh, contemporary MBEs uh, protested and complained about it. They did not care for it. Man, imagine being a- imagine being on the record of being against knighting the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, I'm just and imagining it- like some stuffy old English lords just like, <laughs> no, no, we're, we, we shall be on the right side of history. These, there's a- these ragamuffin mop tops shall not become members of the British Empire. There's, there's a really funny um, old SNL sketch. I, I think Elton John was actually the host. But basically, there's a dragon attacking like Buckingham Palace and they call like the, the Queen's Knights, which are all just like dipshit musicians. And oh, stuff. Yeah. It's really funny. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the, the, the Beatles like didn't stop uh, you going back to who said it. You, you'd like to know who's on record as being against knighting the Beatles famously yeah. John Lennon years later, he like rejected it. He threw it out in protest during his real like, pol- like political phase and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. he was against that. So moving yeah, on, you like, know, it takes a lot of the, it's not so like brave to reject it years after you got it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, going. Oh, go sorry. 
Well, no, it's like saying, you know what, you, you just take this, you know, medal of achievement that you gave me whenever I was 25 years ago, and you retroactively shove it up your ass. <laughs> yeah, John Lennon was a very complicated... That's called being a Ringo. <laughs> he was a very complicated yeah. man. Uh, very much into peace and nonviolence when it comes to the war, but not when it comes to beating his wife. <laughs> Famously. <laughs> and abandoning his first child and pretty much fawning on his child with Yoko. Uh, you know, I'm not saying he's not a bad musician, but he's he's not a he was not a perfect human by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just imagining him like going over what his scruples are. It's like, it's like, well, I abandoned my first child and uh, <laughs> yeah. I broke up. I broke. I broke up the most famous band in the world, but you know, I I really feel bad about that whole knighthood thing. <laughs> I wonder how many Hail Marys you need to do if you, uh, you know, what, if you do a confession with that. Yeah. Right. How many, how many Hail Marys, do, how many Hail Marys do you need to, for God to forgive you breaking up the Beatles? But he, I mean, he had a very, uh, rough life. His mom had him out of wedlock very young, um, possibly a teenager, possibly like 16, 17, 18. I don't really remember. And I didn't look it up. But I just remember this from a Beatles class I took in high school. And um, his mom sort of like gave him up and he was raised by a relative in like a pretty nice house. And the relationship he had with his mom was more like what you what he would have, what he what you would consider with like an older sister. She did get him into music, though, because she was sort of like, oh. you know, um, more of like a free spirit. Uh, and she was tragically killed uh, by a drunk driving cop. So it gave him a lifelong, like he had a very complicated relationship with just the women in his life, um, just from his mom, like at a young age, his mom abandoning him and then sort of reentering his life, you know, maybe when he at a stage where he didn't need her as much, you know, he was a little older. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to have her just taken away, he it, it made it gave him a lifelong, like just grudge against uh, the police in particular, but also any authority really colored his, uh, you know, his um, just his outlook on life. He he wrote the song Julia, which is a beautiful song. His mom's name was Julia in honor of her. Also, his uh, first son's name was Julian in honor of her. So, yeah, just a uh, pretty interesting guy. Definitely something worth looking into. Uh, but in 1965, he was uh, he was the king of the world uh, and with good reason. A lot of people fall like you have to be in a Beatles or Stones kind of camp when you get to this era in music. I got to say, like, I I really did like the Beatles more once they got out of their bubblegum pop phase. Mm-hmm. The, the Stones, though, I mean, you sent out, you know, Satisfaction. Motherfuck, is that a hell of a rock song? I love yeah, that song. Um, I just know more about the Beatles. I, I love the Stones. I, I really do. I love the Beach Boys. I found a Spotify list that was just the Billboard Top 100 for the year 1965. I got a little nervous. Oh, what? Go on. I got a little nervous whenever, whenever you put that uh, 100 greatest songs list on the, the messenger. I'm like, does Kevin want us to listen to 100 fucking songs? <laughs> yeah, right. No, just put it on in the back. I've been listening to it all week. It's it's just good music. Like, it's good jams. And it's such a variation. You have... You know, you have rock and roll is clearly in its heyday. You have still like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin are releasing top hits. 
Uh, you have R&B is starting to get developed. Motown. There's just such a variation of popular music and it is not stopping like throughout this decade because as, as I think as Casey will bring up, like just the youth culture has reached its zenith. Kids that were born like the Beatles themselves were all born at the close or after World War Two. Hey, they're all boomers. Yeah. Still, I don't think I heard a banger. The quality of happy days are here again. <laughs> <laughs> happy days are I, yeah, I wanted to prank you guys by finding another cover of Goodnight Irene. <laughs> <laughs> the 1965 cover. But yeah, so Casey, you, you did bring up the um, how you prefer the Beatles more experimental stuff. And that's when this started. It was in 1965 as a real turning point because of Beatlemania, because of the Shea Stadium concert, setting records for concerts. They were exhausted. Eventually, they just stopped touring altogether, I think after this year. Oh, really? Well, and this was also whenever pop music, you know, every other fucking song had this <laughs> like clapping backtrack on it. And like, I, I, you know, I love pop music, but if I have to hear one more song about, you know, the summer sun and holding hands, like the more experimental stuff is whenever they start to deconstruct. And I just think that's more interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they took a long break after the Shea Stadium show, which was August 15th. Uh, a long break and they started getting more into some more interesting stuff. So that was August. By December, they released Rubber Soul, which I would consider yeah. a real turning point for the band. It has Day Tripper. It also has George Harrison's uh, using a sitar on the song Norwegian Wood. Uh, he just he just saw a sitar in the window of a shop and just was like, that's close enough to a guitar. I should try it. And he bought it and like started playing around with it. And he eventually started a be became like a pupil of Ravi Shankar, who was the greatest sitar player on Earth. <laughs> which led them into, which led him talent. into discovering Indian culture and become eventually becoming Hindu. He converted to Hinduism. I'm still just imagining John Lennon, like in the recording, like studio, still being like, "Do you think I should maybe call my first son? <laughs> maybe even just give him a hug? Well, maybe we'll just lay down this second track now." Paul McCartney actually took care, uh, really cared about Julian. The song "Hey Jude" was actually originally "Hey Jules," which was what he called Julian Lennon. "Hey Jude" was written was a song by Paul McCartney Ooh. for John Lennon's son to make him feel better. That's a yeah, that's a little. Uh elephant in the roomy right also lucy in the sky with diamonds was based off of a drawing that julian did as a toddler isn't it like what a lot of people thought it was like code for lsd right yeah and i'm sure they thought that was funny but little there a, really a is B. a drawing of his friend lucy yeah. in the sky with diamonds and they, they, they thought that was groovy but um <laughs> i'm gonna gonna keep doing that uh they um yeah so it I, I swear to God, I, was, I thought one of the Beatles was with us for a moment. <laughs> yeah. There, uh, I would prefer Ringo any day. Uh, um, so yeah, they they um, like that. Just the the world, like they 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 talk about it a lot in the interviews of the time. Like they're like, yeah, we just we get in a car, we go to an airport, we get on a plane, we go somewhere, we get in a car. Like it, their life was um, just. So stressful. It's actually reminding me, I'm watching currently with my girlfriend, The Last Dance, the ESPN mm -hmm. documentary about the Phil Jackson Bowls. The, mm -hmm. And man, it seems like 
you had to watch Tiger King, and now it's like your stay-at-home homework is now the fucking last dance. I mean, I love it because I, I like I grew up with. I mean, we all everybody was watching the Bulls when we were kids. Well, like. I I, uh, I wasn't. <laughs> well, in Chicago, I know nothing. The, the Chicago land yeah. area where I grew up. I mean, up. I guess I should say something. I don't watch any basketball, but I I can at least remember being like, oh, I know the Bulls are good. Yeah. Back in my little tiny town in Ohio, I'm like, oh, Michael Jordan, he's really good at basketball, right? Probably the only time in my life I could name like all those players by sight. Like I just knew all bas- all the basketball players on that team because uh, they were such personalities. Mm-hmm. But this documentary, there's an episode like one of the episodes is on Michael Jordan right before he retired. And the first the first time retired, what baseball or basketball? Yeah, to in the, to play baseball. Um, and it was because his life had become like the Beatles. Like he, he was mobbed wherever he went. He could not live his mm-hmm. life. And part of the mm-hmm. the joy of playing minor league baseball to him was that he like he was able to be challenged, but also people mostly left him alone. <laughs> and that's what the Beatles were cool. doing that. Like they they got burnt out. They had. They had a really famous bad show in the Philippines where they basically got chased out of the country because the dictator, the Marcoses, like said that they invited them to a breakfast and they just decided not to go because they were tired and like they almost got like <laughs> killed. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, jeez. So, yeah, the Beatles it, did like this. This was a real we can thank their success for driving them like to just be like, no, we're not touring anymore. We're done. That would have started a war, right? If a country killed the Beatles. Oh, yeah. That- like, Great Britain would destroy them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of 1965, great, the British Commonwealth had all but one position on the Billboard Top 10. They just didn't have number two. All the other bands were English bands, or well, British Commonwealth bands. So, like, this was also the height of the British invasion. The Who released My Generation on November 5th, 1965, which includes the line, I hope I die before I get old. Textbook youth culture. Yeah, I love how, I love how, like, bands like The Who and The Beatles, like, have songs about, like, oh, won't it be just terrible when I'm 64 and now they're all just old as fucking dirt? And (laughs) my, uh, my girlfriend's a huge Rolling Stones fan with her whole family and they went to see them a couple years ago at, like, one of their Soldier Field shows. And I guess, like, Mick Jagger was just, like, like all the time between songs was just, like, <laughs> we're so old, please let me go die. <laughs> I'm so tired. It's a bummer because if you want to see, like, the Rolling Stones, like, if you, if you want to get a ticket in Chicago, like, you're paying $300 for a seat that's in, like, Evanston. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a, a. I mean, everyone wants to see him before they die, right? That's the whole thing now. It doesn't even matter about the music. Like, well, I gotta see him before he dies. So, yeah, it's almost yep. like a, a traveling sideshow of just like, oh, and here we have these mummified musicians. <laughs> yeah, we have. That's right. They're still alive. Ooh. The fact that Bob Dylan is still alive, like, and playing concerts shocks me because it's just like, dude, you did, you did it, you did enough. Like we're, we're we'll be fine. I think Bob Dylan died somewhere in like 1995, and no one told Bob Dylan that he died. <laughs> uh, July 25th, 1965, was the very controversial uh, Electric Dylan show. He played a an electric guitar at a the Newport Folk Festival, and he was literally booed. <laughs> booed, yeah. 
1965, like, I, 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 t- I was uh, talking to my girlfriend, like, trying, when I was writing my notes, I was like, man, like, we could almost do a full podcast series just on 1965 music. Like, yeah, this is 1965. We've got The Animals, we've got Donovan, The Temptations, Rolling Stone, The Beach Boys, uh, you know. I used to love The Beach Boys. Oh, I, I do. Pet I love, Sounds uh, is great. Me- like. I love, I love them. They really went in like a very strange direction. Oh, what, Casey? <laughs> I'm like the the I'm like the one lone person that's like under sixty years old now that like really loves Donovan. Oh, I love Donovan. That that's my chill out music, dude. What's what's Donovan? What's a song? I'm terrible with song names and people. Um, Hurdy Gurdy Man, Sunshine nope. Superman, Atlantis. He's a Scottish uh, season of the witch. The Universal I'm Soldier. Sure nope. Oddly no. enough, since uh, we're talking about the Beatles earlier, he was with the Beatles in India, and he actually wrote the guitar riff for Dear Prudence. Yeah. Oh, no shit, really? Very interesting. Uh, Sonny and Cher released I Got You, Babe in 1965. <laughs> like I said, like <laughs> I had a hard time just picking songs. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Rubber Soul and My Generation by The Who came out on the same day. That's amazing. Yeah. But can you imagine like this collaborative mindset of musicians where it's like, yeah, I'll write a lick for your, you know, instrumental section of a song. You don't even have to credit me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eric Clapton did the lead guitar on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Right. And didn't Jimi Hendrix, I don't know what year it was, Jimi Hendrix like bought the record of the Beatles. That he So he he bought a record of the Beatles that just got released and he knew they were going to be at the concert the next day. So he learned a song that was on that record. And played it for them at his concert in one day. <laughs> but, you know, now nowadays, if, if someone writes one note of a song, they have to start it with DJ Khaled featured. Featuring Ringo Starr. Uh, yeah, so to- like, I just I, I cannot I cannot picture DJ Khaled in, in, like, in India being like, you know, oh, here, here's a freebie. Yeah. I mean, we're not even like I can't even get into other non rock and roll genres like L.O.V.E. Love by Nat King Cole was released this year when he died. Miles Davis put out albums. B.B. King put out albums. Duke Ellington still recorded music in 1965. Well, I think that that I mean, like, I don't even want to get into the Grammys. All you need to know, Beatles, best new artist done. Also, Bill Cosby won a Grammy for best comedy (laughs) album. Ooh. Still holds up. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, it was Spanish Fly. Uh, <laughs> I think that. Uh, yeah, like I said, I could go on about music, but I there's only so much time to do a podcast. So I'm mm-hmm. gonna hand it off to you, Casey, and your wonderful, sane movies. <laughs> well, you mentioned Sound of Music earlier, so I'm gonna get the mundane shit over with real quick, <laughs> so I can get into some fascinating stuff. So the sound of music. I'm sorry that that shit bores me to tears. Uh, but sound of music was number one at the box office. It did displace Gone with the Wind as the highest grossing film of all time, and it saved 20th Century Fox after the box office returns of Cleopatra two years ago. Because that movie was the most expensive fucking movie ever made. It was 44 million dollars to make, adjusted for Ooh. inflation. That is. Adjusted for inflation, that is $261 million, 
to make Cleopatra. Jesus. Which was just a big sprawling goddamn epic that was long and tedious. So anyway, Cleopatra did not make its money back and it really put 20th Century Fox in a bind. So whenever they made The Sound of Music, it was an enormous surprise that it was as popular as it was. And it stayed in theaters in American cinemas for four years Holy without cow. being taken out. It was the first film to pass $100 million in box office. That's without inflation. That's insane. That's pretty good. It held the number one box office for 30 straight weeks. Is it a record? It has to be, right? That I'm not terribly sure about that, but with all the re-releases, the total box office on this $8.2 million movie is $286.2 million. It's a cool little profit. Yeah, so it made a little good chunk of cheddar for those guys. I still do not care for Edelweiss. And, I mean, I understand the appeal. It's as many notes I as you were singing that before we get sued. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I love <laughs> media that paints Nazis in a sympathetic light. <laughs> okay, I'm, I should, that's, I, that was a bit unfair to Captain Von Trapp. Nazi sympathizers. <laughs> so, that was the big mainstream thing to talk about. <laughs> now, I want to talk to... <laughs> I want to discuss the drive-in, American drive-in movie theater. So after World War II, car ownership and suburban residency was on the rise, and so drive-in theaters catered to that market. They had cheaper tickets because the maintenance costs were lower, and audiences didn't have to pay for gas to drive into a city to see a movie. So in 1958, there were over 4,000 drive-in theaters in the U.S. You want to guess how many there are now? Uh, less than 100. But they're making it's a, about three hundred. But they're making a comeback because of COVID. Yeah, thanks COVID, COVID nineteen making a comeback. They're, we we went yeah, to a. It's a it's a socially distanced, responsible way to enjoy a movie. Mm-hmm. There was a drive-in in our town, the Forty Nine er. We would go every weekend in the summer. My dad loved it because it's a yeah, double went, feature. It's cheap. Yeah, it's all. It's all. Yeah, I went to it with an ex girlfriend um, back when we were dating back in like two thousand eight in Ohio and like. It's a really fun experience. You know, you're in your uh, car and... Sometimes on holiday weekends, they'll do triple features. Mm -hmm. And so you're just out there to like three or four in the morning. It's awesome. So in the 1950s, the drive-in movie experience was... It was seen as a very family-friendly environment. However, into the 1960s, with the growth of youth rebellion and counterculture, they became more associated with teens and illicit behavior. Ooh... So you've got, you know, the the privacy of a parked car and, Uh you know, a couple of horned up, uh, socially repressed teenagers. They've been listening to Beatles music all fucking day, man. Just just so hot. The the sound of music to really get those gears going. (laughs) All their monocles were just falling out in unison, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, those songs of the day were just so erotic. I mean, how could you not just... Like, make out in a car. Yesterday. So, in 1965, color TV was starting to become more and more prevalent, and this would spell the beginning of the end for the drive-in's popularity. Later conveniences like video rentals and cable, those would be, like, the final death blows, but this was, like, the peak before that decline. And while exploitation movies were a drive-in mainstay for the late shows, 
after the mainstream audiences dwindled more and more, the theaters <laughs> started showing X-rated and eventually pornographic late shows. So here we are At again. At the drive-in? Yeah. So here we are again talking about theaters that started off showing, you know, first-run classics and eventually by, you know, the late 60s and 70s, they are showing skin flicks. Holy cow. I never knew that. I knew about theaters, but I never knew about drive because, like, everyone can see it. Like, they're not hidden. Can you imagine being a teenage guy, like a 13 or 14-year-old boy, and your window is just, like, straight on to, like, three-story boobs? <laughs> like I'm just imagining, like, a, a, a kid, like, oh, I'm going out to the drive-in, ma. <laughs> Do you think they ever put the wrong film on the reel? So, like, it's supposed to be, like, the family movie, and all of a sudden it's just, like... <laughs> it's Booge Master 6. Yeah, Spooge Master 16. <laughs> Spooge Master 69. All these, uh, all these, like, people getting out of their cars in, like, overcoats and dark sunglasses to order popcorn and hot dogs. <laughs> or do you think it's, like, a shame-free environment? Like, everyone's there, pretty, you know? I mean, because no one can see you, right? Like, hey, man, like, I'm here for the same reason you are. Why don't we give each other some space? What if there was one car in the front facing everyone who's watching it? And that's, that's what they, that, guy, that was that guy's kink. With a megaphone. Right, so they're all lined up, all facing the movie. And then there's one guy in the center. Yeah, just like yelling commands at everybody. Everyone's like, turn your lights off. I Stop want you to go slower. And turn the lights off. Well, that's how I enjoy it. <laughs> he has his high beams on like halfway through the movie. I can't see you otherwise. <laughs> You're the oh, owner, my. aren't you? Oh my god! Or it's just a preacher, just like just like nodding his head no the entire mm. time. <laughs> uh, so t- yeah, um, in 1965, the the teen drive-in movie was at its peak because the teen market was always reliable turnout. So after the uh, the mainstream movies, you know they weren't as popular, they started making tailored movies for teens during the summer at drive-ins. And there was this phenomenon that kind of started around 1962, and that was the teen beach comedy. And they all had very similar plots that were all just really goofy stories about teens and various types of youngsters uh, getting into shenanigans. Usually there was a band and original music featured, and <laughs> they always had like some fading uh, former star that they paid to show up for like three days of work to be like the villain or something. <laughs> I think, I mean, after watching that trailer, it's, I it's think pretty genius. we should bring it back. Like, let's have Clint Eastwood trying I mean, to break it, up I mean, it's a pretty bunch genius, of kids at right? the beach. It's, that's just Scooby-Doo at that point. I want to go away. It's with like it. a live action Scooby Doo, but also with like sexual innuendo. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, because like, it, it was it's like a sexually charged sort of like you know like hint hint nudge nudge type of movie that has no consequence. So the movie that I brought to you guys is uh, in the middle of this craze. It was called How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, and this was made by the people that specialized in this movie, which was American International Pictures or AIP. 
they made these movies at low cost, and they always made a sensational movie. So it always had a, a snappy title and was pretty much the same movie over and over again. Just this kind of titillating romp. Like canon and film other group. movies in their... Be- Exactly. It's like you don't mess with success. (laughs) So other movies from this period of the Beach Party movie included titles such as the original one, Beach Party, then Muscle Beach Party, Bikini Bikini Beach, Pajama Party, Beach Blanket Bingo, and then my personal favorite starring um, Boris Karloff, Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. So is the ghost invisible too? <laughs> no, just the bikini's invisible. It's not against the sensors because the bikini's there, just no one can see it. If everything's invisible, that's a really practical special effect. <laughs> I, I love, now I'm obsessed with this now, Casey, that I know this. Like, the executives, like, figuring out, like, so I catch my son and his girlfriend fucking in their car the other day. They were watching one of our movies, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and then, like, there's, like, this poor screenwriter who's just, like, hungry to make art. And then the screenwriter stuck writing these beach movies. So I, I just looked at the poster for Ghosts in the Invisible Bikini, and it's a genius poster. Like, I'm, I, I actually mean that it, uh, because so it's all the background is the background is white and the bikini is white. So it completely looks like the it looks like like the, there's no it looks like she has nothing on because it blends into the background. Right. So it's genius. What they would Very do, smart. as I I, uh, I said previously, they would hire these fading stars at, like Vincent Price would pop up in these. <laughs> and I'm just you know, got Vincent you got Price. Yeah, he was in uh, uh, one of the bikini beach movies. Anyway, uh, you've got all these like sexy teens getting into shenanigans and stuff. And then who is coming for Vincent Price? What is the draw of having, you know, <laughs> oh, this this old universal monster movie actor coming in? Like, I'm imagining like one person in the back of the drive and like, yes, Vincent <laughs> Price. This is his comeback right here. <laughs> But this one's ex- extremely sad, uh, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, because their big cameo get, here we go again, was Buster oh, Keaton. Oh, no. <laughs> Buster, yeah. I don't like thinking about that. Yeah. Who who died from lung cancer within the next year. Oof. Yeah, I mean, he must not have been smoking a- Chesterfield cigarettes, because all the doctors agree Chesterfields are the cleanest smoke you can have. Thanks to our sponsor, <laughs> Chesterfield Cigarettes. <laughs> but I'm just like imagining like, you know, some cigar chomping executive over AIP going like, all right, so I got another teen screw comedy. Uh, who do we got that we uh, know will we'll show up for a paycheck? One of, someone who's real desperate. Well, well I don't know. Uh, how about a, f- a fucking silent film actor? The kids will love that. Do you think they have like a top 10 list of like the most like desperate people? They're like, yeah, let's oh, see. they had to. They made these movies in like between seven and fifteen day shoots. <laughs> an actual list of like, I mean, why wouldn't an she actual do that? list like, of Norma the Desmond? Costs, I mean, <laughs> so let me go over real quick the plot here, because yeah, there there is a plot, and you're gonna love this. So Frankie goes to Tahiti on naval reserve duty. While cavorting with local girls, Frankie realizes that his main squeeze, Dee Dee, might be disloyal to him. 
So what does he do? That bitch. Frankie sees the help of a witch doctor, Buster Keaton. <laughs> oh in my god! Brown face. I don't. He didn't look like he had brown. I saw the trailer. I didn't see it. And and the witch doctor sends a sea beauty, Cassandra, to lure Ricky, an advertising exec who is his competition, away from Dee Dee. Well, upon Cassandra's arrival, the beach turns upside down. Ooh. And all the surfers fall for her. An executive wants to make her a model, and a motorcycle gang shows up and adds extra trouble. Wow, Tahiti? It's crazy. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. It's like all those Tahitian motorcycle gangs. I guess, just the cost of shipping the motorcycles there alone is very prohibitive. Well, they probably weren't. Sh- yeah, they probably weren't shot at Tahiti, right? They're probably shot on some soundstage somewhere. I'm just imagining this poor writer who, like, in his spare time, is trying to write the new great American novel. That's just sending in, like, you know, the third draft of Bikini <laughs> Fuck Beach. That has to be a porn title, right? One second. Bikini. Imagine uh, this, like, poor schmuck, you know, who might have, like, I'm, I'm imagining, like, toiled for years studying, like, Joyce and Chaucer. Eugene O'Neill. And then it's like, it's like, and then the band gets in the parade and the motorcycle gang shows up and... <laughs> And then it's the like, mad scientist you, is there. You know those those door comedy things where it's like a sight gag where like multiple doors open and you don't know who's coming. Do one of but those. Casey, weren't these the movies that inspired Golan and Globus to make movies <laughs> like and build canon? Like in Israel, like they were watching yeah. these movies. This is what American do. American great beach picture. We do too. Better beach picture. If this was like the portrait of America that was being presented to the rest of the world, I'm surprised that the Russians didn't try to invade. Just like uh, old American, they focused on uh, sexy time beach. <laughs> well, that probably just wanted people to deflect or to defect, not deflect. I'm an idiot. We, we might have to deal with a witch doctor or a mad scientist. Yeah, I'm sure that the Russians considered it a big threat. Like, look how much more attractive these people are and <laughs> having fun. They don't have to go work in the factory. <laughs> yeah, eat, eat potato five times a week. Yeah, that's my little diatribe about the the American driving experience and the fever pitch of 1965. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of little closing bits about visual mediums, though. In television, on November 25th, CBS carried the very first broadcast in color of an NFL mm-hmm. game. Who was oh! who played? It was between the Baltimore the Baltimore Colts and the Detroit Lions. Oh. And the final was a tie at 24-24, back when that could fucking Ooh. happen. the color. So that was just, well, no one's happy. Good night, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Professional yep. soccer still I don't know, but that's that. like a, t- it's a tense game. Yep. Pressure, yep. No ties. Or all ties. And then, love it or hate it, something we all know, on December 9th, CBS premiered. A Charlie Brown Christmas. You're stealing my thunder. That was like my number one thing I was going to talk about. Not my number one thing, but one of the things. It's on my list. I'll just just delete that, that from my notes. There it goes. Story God damn it. Sixty-five. That say, was it. That nothing else happened. Zach, Zach, you were doing your job wrong. If the number one news story you had from the mid '60s was Charlie Brown related, I mean, there's a lot of other related. boring stuff like uh, like the uh, Vietnam the March to something Selma, other. Fuck that. But that was going to be like my like happy. Because 1965 had a lot of not happy things in it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, the first American spacewalk, bullshit, who cares? 
Yeah, whatever. Vietnam, MLK. Charlie Brown was where it was at, man. Yeah. I just thought it would be a fun little piece of history. So, uh, wrapping up the film and television, I'm going to send it over to Zach for the non-Charlie Brown related Non-Charlie Brown news. news. So, uh, 1965, uh, I like to call it the space race, or space race, racism, <laughs> Vietnam War. That's what you like <laughs> to call it? Pretty much. It has a good ring to it. That, we I mean, were, like, all, all the news, 1965, racism, space, Vietnam War. Um, I mean, we were, we were falling but, behind the Soviet Union in the space race, but the space racism was just off the Nobody race. will ever beat us at racism. Um, ever. No, Not really. in Australia. I mean, yay. <laughs> racism so, um, in space. <laughs> the, the value of the dollar in 1965 today would be $8.25. I think that's always fun to kind of look at. Um, let's see. The uh, average uh, average uh, cost for a house was three thousand six hundred and sixty dollars. The average income per year was six thousand four hundred and fifty dollars, and the uh, average uh, gallon of gas was thirty one cents. Loaf of bread was twenty one cents, and a new car was two thousand six hundred fifty mm. bucks. Um. So then I thought I'd do something new. Um. And I have kind of like things almost per month. Like like exciting things that happen per month. So January thirtieth, the state funeral of Sir Winston Churchill took place in London, uh, which was the largest assembly of a of a, a funeral for a statesman since. Or that would not, no one would ever see that many people at a funeral until two thousand five for Pope John Paul II. So you know, that was I tell you, this if year. there was if there was ever a public figure for the ceremony of pouring one out for your home he started, it'd have to be Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> the, I know I'm uh, dead, but the brandy's too good. <laughs> the spacecraft Ranger 8 crashed into the moon after uh, it was photographing possible landing sites for the Apollo program, uh, you know? So that was happening. February 21st, I know this is another February thing, but it's kind of important. The uh, African-American Muslim minister and human rights activist Malcolm X is assassinated in New York City. So that was this year. uh, A bloody Sunday, uh, 200 Alabama state troopers attack 525 civil rights demonstrators in Selma, Alabama, as they attempt to march into the capital of Montgomery. Uh, and so then on March 21st, Martin Luther King led 3,200 activists to march again, uh, in a third march to Selma, uh, from Selma to the Capitol. Um, another, uh, NASA program, Ranger 9, was another, uh, unmanned lunar space program. I think it was the last one. I would love to hear the, like, the, the group roundtable meeting for Ranger 9. Like, okay, look, guys. Uh, Ranger eight mistakes were made. Uh, I mean, you know, Phil, I'm going to put that one on you, buddy. You, you had your hand on the button, but I think this is going to be a rebuilding year for the Ranger program. Definitely going to be the most memorable NASA event of the sixties. All right. Hands in. Well, well, think about it. Ranger eight was less, there was a month before this. So think like we were just shooting up rockets every month. They would, we didn't care. So then, uh, uh, on March 23rd, there was the the two-person crew Gemini 3. March 25th, uh, MLK March 2, the Capitol, was finished. So that took about four days. I'd like to say um, a little thing about Gemini 3. That module is actually on display 
uh, really near to my hometown where Gus Grissom, the astronaut that was a pilot, grew up in that uh, area. So they brought the space capsule to a memorial there. I got to tell you, two men fit in this son of a bitch for like, you know, an extended period of time. And I got claustrophobia looking at this fucking thing. Yeah, it's tiny. It's like a it's like a small like porta potty. And like it I mean yeah, there was no like, guarantee that it would work. <laughs> I mean Oh yeah. Yeah. Like imagine like it's like strapping yourself into a like a It's a, a lawn chair booth. with it's a lawn chair with rockets on it. Yeah. Right? And imagine like you know it, it, something that you don't want to spend like 45 seconds in having to spend hours while circling the globe with something that had like the computing power of like of a calculator an abacus and like so after you pissed yourself after taking off and you're alive you get like one moment of happiness that's like i'm alive to realize that you have to then go back down yeah the, I, I would consider that oh, the hard no way. part i would never do that <laughs> Coming going back down, to Earth. I, man. I don't know. I'm sure, like, like the Russians shot up oh. a lot more people than just that Yuri Gargan guy. He was just the first one to come back. Yeah, <laughs> lived. Um, May fourth, forty men burn their draft cards in Berkeley, in uh, a coffin is a coffin is marched to the draft board. So, like again, Vietnam War, a lot of protesting going on. Uh, J- June third, Gemini four, the first astronaut to do a space or United States. Spacewalk was done by Ed White, June 3rd. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, Alexei Leonov was the uh, first spacewalker from the Soviet oh. Union. Do you know when that was? It was a year, I think, prior. and Was it 64? Yeah, we were basically in the shadow of the Soviet Union's achievements in space right up to the Apollo Probably till this year. Yeah. This, I mean, we're just... We're just any any month, just send up a rocket. Just just do it. Um, and I, get, I tell you what, I would be so fucking nervous if I was any of like the original like Mercury or Gemini like astronauts because if you look at some of those missile tests, like rockets are just falling over and exploding. Oh and yeah, <laughs> it's like okay, so that's gonna be ready, you say, huh? And uh, yeah, so that that's what safe? was that Apollo? What, what was that Apollo mission where like they didn't even blast off, but they they got them in, and then the whole capsule caught on fire, and they all died. It just explode, wasn't it? Was it it seven? was before eleven. No, that was I Apollo know one. Uh, I'm a NASA nerd. It was Apollo one, and they were doing a systems check. It wasn't a launch. I mean, I mean, just oh, yep, that was January twenty seventh, nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, Gus Edward Gus White Grissom, was on that, and Gus Grissom died in that Ed too. White, yeah, Ed White, the guy I just talked about, is was in that that um, Apollo One. Uh, moving on, um, July fourteenth, the Mariner Four, another spacecraft, took the first pictures from the red planet mm. Mars, like uh, going over Mars. So that's and that's fascinating, right? That they had the technology to get to to get the that information picture, back. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's crazy. At that, point, at that point, we knew so little about the surface of Mars. You know that there were like mm-hmm. some guys sitting at Mission Control that were like so bummed we didn't see pictures of like cities and infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if there's like, any. I wonder what the biggest bet was. <laughs> like, uh, there were just like twenty dollar bills being passed back and forth <laughs> amongst a bunch of dorks at Mission Control. A bunch, a bunch Gene of Gene Roddenberry. Uh, damn it. 
August 11th, the Watts riots were in Los Angeles. It was a race. It was oh, a geez. race riot. Uh, it, it, it's lasted five days, resulting in 34 deaths and over 3,000 arrests. Um, so, another Los Angeles and racism. Wonderful, wonderful 1965 racism. The Soviet Union um, couldn't hold a candle to it. Take that, USSR. Um, and then September 9th, Hurricane Betsy hit New Orleans with 145 mile per hour winds, causing 76 deaths and $1.42 billion in damage. It was the first hurricane to cause over a billion dollars in damage. And then uh, the last thing I have, uh, December 15th, Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 did the first controlled rendezvous in Earth's orbit. Oh, cool. So I have, you know, uh, that's like what I thought had like important things that happened per month. There were a couple of months that like weren't super fascinating. I'm um, just imagining like the the guys that worked on the Ranger program like, just sitting in the back, like, with nothing to do as, like, the Gemini and Apollo program start kicking up. They're just like, mm-hmm. hey, you guys need a... You want my, my that was the golden age of the United Space space race was before Gemini and Apollo. Yeah, someone send the Ranger team out to get coffee. <laughs> Make sure they don't crash um, into the fucking moon on the way back. The uh, Some sport trivia... Uh, the Buffalo Bills were the AFC, the AFL champions. They beat the San Diego Chargers twenty-three to zero. The NFL championship was against the Green Bay Packers over the Cleveland Browns, and the Packers won. Mm. Uh, let's see, baseball. The Cleveland Browns series. are back again in this topic. Yeah, they were really good in the sixties. They were really, really good in the fifties and sixties. Uh, then they uh, got terrible. I'm just like, uh, what, the world what happened to the this world franchise? Series, huh? What happened to this franchise? Like. But in 1950, it's like they follow Cleveland. Like back when Cleveland used to be great, they were awesome. Now that Cleveland's terrible and everyone hates it, they're terrible. Yeah, no one wants to live Uh, there. The World Series, the Dodgers beat the Twins four games to three. Uh, NBA Finals, Celtics over the Lakers, Los Angeles Lakers, four to one. And then I think the hockey was the Canadians beat the Blackhawks four to three just because we live in Chicago. Thought that'd be kind of a fun little thing. Uh, famous people born, uh, Robert Downey Jr., J.K. Rowling, uh, Chris Rock, Ben Stiller, Kevin James, Scottie Pippen, speaking of basketball. Underrated. Uh, Viola Davis. So, you know, uh, 65 was really like a, like a really, we, we keep getting like huge years <laughs> in our in our drawings. Yeah, I think our next one is like something like 1987. It is 1987, the year before I yeah. I, I was born. I'm not sure about you, Casey. Me too. Yeah. One one year before me. And like, you know that we're gonna be like going for like, yeah, we were trying to go to the moon, <laughs> and civil rights were fighting for equality, and now it's gonna be like oh, Walkmans were kind uh, of scared. Ronald Reagan. Music is going to take a very good turn. That's all I gotta say as a preview. <laughs> Yeah, Kevin's just really amped up to start talking about Depeche Mode. <laughs> yeah, once we go back to like 1924, he's going to be like, well, uh, there's a band. They made a song. Nope. 40 people covered you it. Know what I'm gonna, I'm you know what I'm going to be saying to myself? Happy days are here again. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, final thoughts about 1965, guys? I think it's fascinating, just on my standpoint, that we all, I mean... Racism's fucking stupid. So let's just put that the hell out there. And comparing that to we were literally sending people into space. It's amazing so, the problems that we were conquering 
that seemed insurmountable versus the ones that seemed obvious that we couldn't figure out. It's like, oh, going to the moon, that's like some Herculean, ancient, like, never going to happen dream that we are getting close yeah. to. But just, you know, accepting people of different color to work and live around you. No, nope, that's do that impossible. One. The, the first can't do that. Segregated orchestra happened in 1965. Good God. <laughs> yeah, like it just took and, that. And you're if you're offended, I want to say this, if you're offended by us talking about this and how like racism is not big of a deal, go fuck yourself. I'll say that right now. <laughs> yeah, most of the music we're talking about would not have been possible without contributions from African American people who pretty much developed yeah. it. Like it's <laughs> almost well, and, all and of the early positive. Beatles songs that Casey hates were uh <laughs> basically R&B covers. Like same with the Stones. It, the Stones covered blues music. Like that's all they did. That's how they got started. And in a positive note to think that 40 years, 41 years from this year the first black president got elected to. So to, to go from a prominent civil leader figure getting assassinated to a president is, is kind of a, a big deal. I don't know. That's like, I just, every time I kept on seeing like all that racism stuff, it, it really just, I'm like, what? So you're saying we are seven years from Watergate, but we're <laughs> about 40 years from Obamagate. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, final thoughts for me on a bit of a lighter note. Uh, there's too much music, you guys. I can't cut talk about it all. There's too much music this year. And it's all You're going to have to start trying harder than just sending us like, yeah, here's 280 songs. <laughs> I mean, did you listen to the playlist at all? It's good. Put it on shuffle. I don't have Spotify premium, so I can't I can't listen uh, to it. So I have to like send it to YouTube and do it that yeah. way. Uh, from my perspective, though, especially in like theater and, and like movie theaters and television, it's the same like uh, cycle over and over again. And we're right in the middle of it now with streaming content. It's mm -hmm. theaters come and then they get replaced and then they slowly die and start showing weirder, more experimental stuff. And then porn. they get replaced by the, yeah. And then it leads to porn every fucking time. <laughs> Just like the, uh, the VHSs that would, uh, VHSs and cable that would replace the drive-in. Guess what? You start getting Skinamax and you know dirty beta tapes, and then they get replaced by the internet. And guess what? Here comes Pornhub. It is always back to porn. Porn will always win. <laughs> yep. If there's one constant throughout this whole podcast, is that it's going to lead to porn. Oh, we should do a historical porn podcast. Just Oh, oh, that actually would be really interesting. A porn and just cast? wait till this podcast turns into a porn the podcast. The Kinsey Institute could be involved, Casey. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, yeah, What's next year? Was you know, it's another hell of a year. Everything was definitely in a chaotic but progressive state, mm -hmm. and uh, it, was, it was very fascinating to look at. We are going to be diving just head first into the the neon glow of the the 80s oh, yeah. next episode where you can't see us now but uh, on the next episode we're all gonna look like max headroom animations or in flock <laughs> what flock of seagull hair <laughs> yeah flock of i bet i'm already on my way there with this no haircut yeah my uh, I'm, I'm getting it <laughs> So we're so, going crazy here definitely come in for the insanity of 1987 but signing yeah, off Signing off for 1965, I am Casey Ellis. I'm Kevin Dorn. I'm Zach Tenardi. All right. Thank you, everyone, and have a great night. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye.